Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are, are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's a mystery Alright, this is my second live podcast, guys. This is episode 100 of the Here We Are podcast. Yeah. Our first guest coming to stage is Ian Eschger, who is a software developer and technologist at IBM. How about a hand for Ian, everybody? And uh, the other guest for today is a, a researcher on health behavior in the psychology department at UNC Wilmington, Wendy Donlin, everybody. All right, so, so Wendy, can you tell us uh, a little bit about your, your work? Yeah, so I am a behavioral researcher in psychology, and I'm really interested in the behaviors that people engage in that affect their health. So, for example, you might be sitting here right now with a beer in front of you, full well knowing that beer's probably not the healthiest thing to drink in the world. You know you're going to get me fired right now. No. Right? This is, they literally make their income off of the beer. <laughs> the good news is we don't know how to fix it completely. So oh, people God. are going to be drinking beer forever. Yeah. Um, but it's probably not good to drink 20 beers. Have three. Don't drink 20. Um, also, you know, you might have had a donut today, doing, knowing that a donut wasn't healthy. You may have done uh, a drug in your past. So giving information about behavior, um, what behaviors you should be engaging in, don't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily change your behavior. So 
what sort of conditions lead people to engage in healthy-related behaviors. I've worked with different populations, so the drug abuse crowd. I've worked with people who wanted to quit smoking and couldn't. People who were doing cocaine and heroin and were having trouble problem, you know, problems quitting that. And what I've been doing recently is working with people who want to be more physically active, but they're having trouble getting started and maintaining that sort of behavior. So interventions to make people just engage in healthier behavior. Fantastic. Uh, we're going to get way into that um, because I, I, I may have done a drug or two in the past. Um, <laughs> Ian, can you explain a little bit about your work? Ian's the first guest that I've ever had where I ask Ian uh, what he does, and he doesn't seem to know. <laughs> well, it's, I, it's because I'm a, um, I'm a tinkerer, so I work for IBM, and I'm a software developer, sort of. Uh, I'm an amateur software developer. And among the things that I, um, that I do at IBM is uh, I mess around with artificial intelligence because recently um, IBM and lots of other companies are investing in and making available ways to play with artificial intelligence. In other words, at one time we imagined that Watson was a sort of single supercomputer at one jeopardy. Can, can you, yeah, so Watson won jeopardy. Can you explain a little bit of, of Watson so that yeah. people know? Yeah, um, um, I don't even know. It was it uh, five years ago, six years ago. IBM developed, had been developing, and then finally put into the open this thing called Watson. It's a giant computer, conceptually a computer. In fact, it's lots of things. And they sort of thought, what are we going to do with this computer? Gosh, we spent a lot of time working this out. How will we tell people about it? And what they did, as many people saw, was they had Watson play Jeopardy, and it killed. It just absolutely dominated Jeopardy. Although one of the things that was a, the biggest bummer for me was it turns out among the things it didn't do was listen to Alex Trebek. There was, in fact, a guy, like a, someone behind the scenes, was keying to Watson the questions in real time so that Watson would have uh, text entered. I know. My phone can hear what well, I'm this saying. Is, uh, so I don't, was it five years ago, seven years ago? It was long enough ago, they weren't quite sure about that last mile. Can we, can we say it? Can Alex say it? No. No, no, no. Get, get, get a guy, like someone just keying it in. Watson's it's a sort of, pussy. I know it. It sort of makes it, I mean, there's lots of good things happening in Watson, but that particular thing I thought, ah, oh, that's like, it's a bummer to know that. Anyway, yeah. so, so anyway, I... Um, Watson, that's what it was. It sort of is that now, but increasingly, I work with developers at IBM, and part of my job is to sort of listen to developers and figure out what they're playing with and what are their favorite pet programming languages and so forth. And increasingly, what we do is say, you, like cognitive computing, this is the name for it, it's something that you can go play around with. So I play around a little bit with um, Watson services and cognitive computing. Is if, you're, if you're sort of a hacker, developer, you can just go... Try it out. You can build things with Watson, which is what I do some of. Okay, so we're going to move forward having no idea what you do. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> so, um, I, I, I was, uh, <laughs> I, I think it's interesting that, I mean, it seems so amazing when, when you make like a computer like Big Blue or something, uh, was it Big Blue? Big that one, that, one, uh, that yeah. one, the, the chess master. That was like 20 Some years ago or something, yeah, right? That's a long time yeah. ago. And, and winning Jeopardy, but, but it also seems like from a computational standpoint, it doesn't, it doesn't seem, it just seems like memorizing some like 
pretty simple tasks, really. It doesn't. It doesn't seem like. Is it? Is that, that's it, like a. That's like a softball. Like, oh no, Shane. That's not what it is at all. It, it, well, please inform <laughs> well, me then. I mean, because, uh, uh, well, that okay. So that's a thing to talk about. Artificial intelligence. It, at what point is it intelligence? Yeah. Is what, at what point is it sort of um, like housekeeping? In other words. If you knew this and this, but you could know them both quickly, then you would just, I mean, we, you know, you're going to solve this chess because chess is finite, right? Um, Watson is said to be something different um, and perhaps emergent and something we talk about, but it's at some point, it's not simply, let me teach you all the things that I know, and then you will know those things. It's, let me show you a bunch of information and then give you rules, Watson, and then you can make inferences and you can learn new things. And the, and then the rate at which you learn those things might get sort of astonishing, and that's artificial intelligence. Or you know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of different definitions of what AI is. But at some point, when it's making inferences, it's learning new things and learning how to learn and seeing patterns that we don't see. It's like, oh, this is a thing. We've got a. This is a new. This is like some. Is it intelligence? At what point is it intelligence? Is sort of what a lot of people talk about. How how did the, that initial programming start? Like, what's what was Watson like as a baby? Was it cute? <laughs> Actually, that baby. That's a, okay. We we can come back to baby, but um, I think Watson was the culmination of a lot of different fields. I mean, Watson again. How will we describe this? What will it do so people become aware of it? Well, I mean, IBM has been doing research. You know, this sort of deep learning. Neural nets, a big blue. That's like a long time ago. Watson is simply, in a way, the assembly of a lot of hardware, a ton of software. Again, like the sort of, oh, it's a big box, and you go to it, and you ask a question, and then out pops an answer. That For that, in the back end, to be even kind of what you think is happening, there's a lot of old research and new research. It just sort of came together. And at a certain point, I think IBM and other companies, too, just say, yeah, it's time. Like you put natural language processing together with some sentiment analysis, and you do this classification. Bang! Like now, let's call it a new thing. But it's actually research that's been going on for decades. IBM, I mean, IBM, as far as I know, since its inception, was sort of like looking at doing doing a fair amount of research, and in this area, and at, you know, you you get sort of eight subsystems, and you put them together, and you get them kind of choreographed. It's like, huh? That's a little bit like what our brains work like, right? In other words, our brains also from the outside seem like, yeah, Shane, he's like, he's smart. I ask him a question and he has an answer. But really, what are the various subsystems in your brain that are, okay, I'm hearing a voice. The voice can be understood to have a question in it. It's got a predicate and so forth. All these things working together. Mm. Um, all right. So let's start trying to tie you two together a little bit. As someone who, as someone who is a, a, a transhumanist, meaning I want to be a robot, as soon as I possibly can. Like, I, I don't want to be a robot, like, so I don't die. I want to be, like, a robot now. Um, because I don't, I don't like, like, having to eat and poop and all that. Um, but, um, and, like, I have a bad foot, and that's stupid. It should be a robot foot right now. It's, it's just stupid. Our bodies are dumb. Um, but in the meantime, I'm going to... I'm going I'm, I'm gonna to have to wait for that. It's going to take at least... By, by the most grandiose yeah. estimates, what, what, what is it, uh, Ray Kurzweil thinks like 30 years or something we'll be able to upload our brains into a supercomputer. That's ambitious. Yeah, Ray's um, been good for that kind of quote for like 30 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He has been Next saying for 30 year. years that it's, he's, he's uh, eh, a little 
overly optimistic. But um, so in the, so I need to live for about thirty more years. So I have all uh, like one of the, one of the biggest things that I've I've been working on is trying to improve my health. I had my my listeners have to hear about this all the time, but I was for the first time in my life in like really good shape had built great habits was eating right and exercising i broke my feet hiking everything fell apart i'm trying to get back on that again and so one of the many things and i i don't i don't even think i've mentioned this on the podcast before because i'm just embarrassed by what stupid decision making cigarettes are but i smoked cigarettes for 16 years i quit for three years and then I started again, like, last year when just shit in my life fell apart. And, um, and cigarettes are the devil. Um, I didn't believe in the devil until cigarettes, but they are awful. Um, you, do, you do a bit of, of work with, um, with cigarette addiction, well, all sorts of addiction. Can you talk a little bit about how cigarette addiction works or even addiction in general and what I can do to stop smoking cigarettes? What? The, what the ambitious. world can do to stop yeah. smoking cigarettes. So, I mean, one of the big reasons that people smoke is that immediately when you smoke, there's a drug effect that feels good. And that has to compete with all of this knowledge of you, you know that it's bad for you, that there's a possibility you're going to get cancer 20 years from now, but that's uncertain. Especially when you you're might 16 not be able to be a, a robot. Ass that's going to live forever. Exactly. <laughs> So, robot smoking. Robots. <laughs> yeah, robots will be all smoke. They'll, no they'll, problem. They'll they'll be. I think they're they're gonna be like hitting nitrous and stuff, aren't, yeah. aren't they? <laughs> so um, when we engage in these types of unhealthy behavior, it's because right now it feels good, um, and you have to balance that with the the bad side effects that happen in the future. And the problem is that humans discount those way off events. You know, if I were to ask you right now, would you rather have ten dollars right this minute, yes, or twenty dollars next week? Which would you choose? Well, I'm so broke right now. I mean, I feel like the ten dollars could really. I won't need that and twenty dollars. And so, so we much are discounting the value of that extra ten dollars by a week, basically, if you're going to choose, choose the $10 now. And we, we sort of make all of our behavioral decisions that way. We, you know, is it going to be good for me now? I'm going to do it. Unless we're, you know, there's such a bad outcome in the future that we've actually experienced before, um, it's going to be hard to tell that 16-year-old kid who's never experienced coughing while he walks up the steps that it's bad for you because it doesn't feel bad to him right now. And another big thing for for um, for quitting, I noticed that you had a vape, yeah, uh, an electronic yeah. cigarette. I, so, I've been I just started vaping, uh, I think six days ago. Yeah, and it's been so far an incredible improvement. I, I eventually don't want to vape either, but anything's better than cigarettes. Yeah. But go on. So oh, and, um, by, and by the way, um, it, just last little interruption. I will, after this, we'll also be doing a Q&A. So in case you're like, oh, I want to ask, we will get I want to know about vaping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sounds like an ad. (laughs) So, So, I mean, uh, taking a step toward, uh, you know, just getting rid of the cigarette itself is good because it's not the nicotine that's in the cigarette that's necessarily bad for you. It's all the other crap, like tar. Yeah. And that's what's bad for you. Like, Um, uh, nicotine's just addictive. It's not in itself 
a bad, bad for your health. Bad. That's right. a, this is I was kind of asking, like, so so this is this is eventually like on the way to being a robot. Once I start having various like apparatuses, <laughs> when, when I'm a cyborg, like that's going to be the first step is to be a cyborg. Can I just have like a little backpack with like a little nicotine drip, and it's just straight nicotine? Well, Probably. It sounds like you're creating this world, so why not? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so, so. Um, there are some cardiovascular side effects. So as you get older, uh, there's more of a risk uh, when, you're, when you're using nicotine of having cardiovascular events. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious. This, this, everyone, um, it, people uh, like rolling your own cigarettes and like mm-hmm. American spirits are more popular now. Is that an actual like a little bit of an improvement from the, the, like your Marlboro Camel? I'm just trying to get sued I by as many it. people as possible. I don't know. I haven't seen research on that specifically, but you're not going to get the filters that you would get with a typical cigarette. And smoking through a filter is going to filter out some of the tar. Oh, the filters actually do something? I, yes. I, 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 um, I thought it was maybe a scam. But I, I remember, actually, it's, it's funny. Um, I remember when I, was, I, when I was young, I went to my grandparents' house. or uh, my, my grandpa was cleaning out some house for an auction or something like that. I was in an attic. I found cigarettes from, like, the 1940s, and they were medical cigarettes for asthma, no, that's not and, good. And what made them what made them good for you was that the was that the filter was hollow. It was that there was no <laughs> filter, and that's what made it healthy for you. Um, but, I think we've but come we, a little bit further than <laughs> yeah, that. Good. Yeah. All right. So sorry to interrupt. Go. On. Um, so uh, some people think switching to the vape is one way to quit. So you're you're getting rid of some of the toxins that you might be exposed to with cigarettes. Uh, you know, you might have seen in the news, there's a lot of questions, though, about the additives in the electronic cigarettes. Uh, flavors come with all sorts of chemicals that are untested, and they appeal to children, possibly. Bumblegum flavor is probably, you know, more appealing to a child than an adult. Um, so those are going to be regulated soon. And the, sci- the science just isn't out. Are they, as, are they better? Maybe. It seems like they probably should be unless you're adding stupid things to them. My throat and lungs feel better yeah. already. Yeah. Like um, popcorn butter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is the propylene glycol that gets added to some of the flavors that causes popcorn lung. So so what what can uh what's what's the seems to be the best results as far as people either weaning off or quitting is because people use, try soap patches and right. cold turkey and uh, I, the the relapse rates are pretty high for cigarettes um, if you try to quit there's like a more than 50% chance you'll relapse um, I mean you, you have to try to quit several times before it becomes successful people who use Chantix which is a new drug, varinicoline um, seem to have a better chance at quitting that first time. And what's that doing? Um, what people des- what people describe as feeling like when they're on it is that they don't crave the drug quite as much, so they don't even want to smoke. And when they do, they feel a little bit sick. Mm. So it's interfering with how um, nicotine works in the brain. 
some for some people other people have really bad side effects where they're having night terrors um and that's a very very small proportion of the population but there are some people who just don't want to take it there's a few night terrors (laughs) here and there (laughs) Uh, there's also nicotine replacement so you can use the patch or the gum and that helps people break the habit so it's not only that you're getting the nicotine it's that you're you're doing something with your hands you're sucking in the the smoke and all of that is associated with smoking so if you can get rid of some of that it'll make easy make it easier later to just completely quit and it's easier to reduce the amount of nicotine over a, a period of time that way as well well i i'm i'm curious with with um programming artificial intelligence see it se- it seems like you'd be programming out any of these problems like like yeah. like i think intuitively um with a robot you you think like oh they would just make these perfect sound decisions all the time but the reason why we've evolved many of these biases and these in these i mean addiction is just hyper learning basically you've just mm-hmm. learned a behavior really well. i'm just great at learning is what i like <laughs> to think about myself and um and and, and so uh, I guess the point I'm trying to make... So there, there, there are people that don't have... Like, you think of a robot and you don't think... You think, well, you get rid of these messy emotional states that kind of screw up everything. But there are people that don't have um, emotions. That be, they've had some brain damage and uh, their amygdala... I'm kidding. Uh, I'm, I'm overextending myself a bit now, but but there's people that that don't feel um, emotions and, and and they can and they're perfectly cognitively fine and and can talk just like you and I. But if you the doctor will go in and ask them and be like, what what um, what time do you want to schedule the appointment? Do you want to come in next Wednesday at four or next Tuesday at three? And it's a nightmare of a decision for these people because there's really no difference involved. Like, it's all the same, basically, to them. But then they'll agonize over every variable and figuring out exactly, uh, okay, well, then I could catch the bus at this time. And, and, and so they fall into this kind of analysis right. paralysis. Right. Uh, is artificial intelligence going to be susceptible to... Um, its own biases because right. it, through an inherent need for them. Well, if, as we talk about artificial intelligence and what makes it go, in times when we have systems that learn, we're talking about reward systems, and that's where it starts to maybe get uncannily like human behavior. Uh, seeking behavior is kind of what you need. If you're going to have something that's not simply algorithmically digesting and knowing facts that are ascertainable, but learning, it sort of has to want to learn. It has a reward, you know, it, it, and it gets more of that reward, and it sort of has to be taught to want that reward. And in that way, I mean, I'm, who knows, but you could get sort of an addictive robot because it I would need be, more numbers yeah ah! that's right that's right uh, and then they and then they start binging on uh, now right. they're just eating all the numbers all the time and then some of the robots are like you only got to eat gotta prime stop. numbers yeah. it's uh, they're the healthy ones and <laughs> fiber it's like fibrous that's right you know what so one of the most riveting um, pieces of radio i ever heard speaking of this was it was about testosterone i think it was this american life but it was about people who have been deprived of all testosterone or all sort of hormonal, all the stuff that makes you want and not want. 
And someone who had a normal amount and then lost it said, yeah, it wasn't just that I felt sluggish. I, at that, without any of it, I could not even distinguish the foreground from the background. In other words, to see things, to even to perceive, you have to think like, this guy is sitting too close to me, or is this a threat, or he's kind of good looking, or whatever. That's all. That, <laughs> that's right. So, right. You have an appropriate amount of testosterone, like Ian is talking about. Right? But the point is, um, you know, the, the way you know things quickly, and, and your emotions are not simply like, oh, you feel sad, you're happy. It's how you get to see things. You're, you, you move around perceiving because you're motivated in this direction or that direction. Why is something in the foreground? Because is it, is it a threat or is it a reward? You know, I mean, emotions are entailed, right? They're in there. Yeah. Um, hmm. That's interesting. I, I uh, yeah, I, I wonder what robots are going to find themselves addicted. Are, 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 there, are there already, so there's already kind of these biases, like in, in Watson? Oh, yeah. I mean, when you talk about inferences, I, I mean, of a sort, but if you talk about making inferences or learning new things, you're, you, you will want to have reward systems. I mean, uh, like uh, a classic and sort of rather old example of machine learning is neural nets. You know, I mean, there's no, you, it, it's like a computational model where you have, um, it is said, like the human brain, there's not a sort of a, is this an elephant? single function in there, there's like lots of little parts. And the part, one part would say is it gray? And it would sort of forward. And there's another little part in the brain that says is it the size of a is it sort of elephant size or is it much smaller? And these things cooperate with one another. You know, they, but none, they all have sort of discrete jobs to do. But in the end you get like it's an elephant because we pass, you know, so, so that, the, that sort of modeling, you know, when you say that you have computational models that are getting to what the brain is like, you have to introduce, um, yeah, you got it right, and you'd like to do this again. That, that becomes part of the system. It's an integral part of the system, rewards. Although, I mean, I don't know about addiction. You can always just say, and then stop when you've got enough or whatever. But there is a, there is a sense in which it's, you know, it's desirous of the right outcome. Ah, yeah. That, well, that seems... It, I mean, I think that's part of, part of the problem with humans is we evolved in these states without a stop program because we, like chewing tobacco uh, too many tobacco leaves or whatever wasn't really an issue in our evolutionary past eating too much food was never an issue in our evolutionary past having too much sugar and so we don't it seems like we don't have a lot of these um, mechanisms in place Wendy if you were to if you were to try to kind of reprogram the human brain yeah. what, what would you be attempting to do well, I mean, reprogramming the, reprogramming the brain is really hard, but the best thing to get people to not engage in the, these addictive behaviors is to offer alternative reinforcers. So you're talking about the motivation. Um, one of the most effective ways we've gotten people to quit doing drugs is to offer reinforcers for not doing drugs. And it's crazy how just offering a little bit of money, hey, you want this cigarette or would you rather have 10 bucks? And they say they're addicted, but they're making the rational decision to, to go for other things. So I think that if you want to balance um, these, you know, how people behave, give them other opportunities to, to look for other things. I think it would be interesting, how do you prog that, program that into an artificial intelligence um, 
and and the judge making judgment making that they're going to have to do too well, with uh, a lot of I mean like uh, even your biggest heroin addict could probably quit for like a week for like ten million dollars or something. <laughs> like oh, we that. got him to quit for much less than that. <laughs> yeah. So the guy. Uh, yeah, uh, it might take ten million if you've got like the hardest. Uh, addicted person ever but in some work I did at Johns Hopkins we recruited in people who had been 40 year heroin addicts and were also doing cocaine we gave them a job and then gave them a choice do you want to come and work today for eight bucks an hour or do you want to do some cocaine and most of the time they chose to come to work and do the work so just competing reinforcers reduced this other behavior that doesn't mean they're never going to do cocaine again. They probably will. But sometimes if you re- it helps with work. You know? It does. <laughs> it does. It keeps you going. Yeah. Well, I the know. funny thing is you asked if, if uh, that Are the children be- still in the audience? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you say, why couldn't that be programmed into an AI system? But I, you sort of have to ask, why isn't that programmed into evolution? In other words, like I know you're talking about... Yeah. Um, uh, uh, there's, there's longitudinal data now, which is the kids who, in the Oreo study, you know, um, yeah. would you like one Oreo? Right. Or I'm going to go away and you can have two Oreos. And of course, to, to the child, the ones who, what's it called, uh, suspended uh, delayed gratification right. are doing better. They're doing better. So why hasn't, why hasn't our culture, I mean, wh- how is it that the, you know, the ones who took one Oreo right away and just like scarfed it, they didn't fall off. They're, they're, they're not thriving as much. Why over time? Well, I mean, evolutionarily, sometimes taking the food that's in front of you right now and eating it is adaptive. A good thing. That's and there's survive. actually a follow-up to that study, too, yeah. that, that shows that it, was, it wasn't... So, so the study was, was purported to show that, that it was showing people with more self-discipline... Right. And then these people would go on to have more successful lives because they would go to college and all of this stuff. But, but um, follow-up studies kind of, kind of show that what that study was actually showing, what it was predicting more, uh, uh, more accurately, was poor socioeconomic status and an yeah. oh, unstable upbringing. And so if you have an unstable upbringing yep. and the world is very unpredictable, yep. um, if, someone, if someone says... If you wait, I'll come back and you get three cookies or whatever. Well, you just have learned not to trust them. You don't believe that that's going to happen. So the rational choice is the rational choice is to eat the cookie. Yeah. And and I think that um, evolutionarily, I'm not sure evolution had an opportunity to weed out a lot of our modern problems. If you take something like cocaine, where people were chewing on coca leaves, and then all of a sudden. We figure out this way smoke it. Uh, to smoke it and snort it, and and it's just like times a thousand all of a sudden, and that's what we're doing with sugar, with additives. You know, it, I mean, to come across um, some bushes with some berries on it in our evolution, like that's a huge find, and you'd want to eat as much as you could and store up all this fat and save it, pack it away for a rainy day. And evolution, we didn't evolve in a, in a place with fridge, with refrigerators and, and grocery stores. And, and, and or synthesizable compounds. You can just, I'm going to make a lot of exactly. it. Exactly. And, and, and companies are either, either, um, either intentionally through like in a conspiratorial way or just stumbling upon something that works, that sells, figuring out that you can just 
really stimulate these these this neural wiring um, in, in in just like this very hyper uh, way that that it's kind of almost reprogramming um, the way that we think, and we I, I don't think that we were. There, there was never that in the past, and there's, there's no suitable programming for it because right. why would there be? Why it wasn't necessary? We're sort of out of our element evolutionarily. I mean, I do wonder. Like, I'm, I'm a really skinny person, as you can see. My whole family's like this. People think I'm. Uh, people mocked me for being anorexic my whole life and whatnot. Um, but maybe eventually in the future it will be like maybe, maybe uh, I'll like people like bony bastards like me will get laid more because. Because some natural inclination to to be attracted to someone who has uh, who just a natural low appetite or whatever it might be lives longer and is healthier and, and those genes might be passed on. That's not going to work in my case because I have a myriad of other bad choices that I make. <laughs> but um, uh, also, what's great though is that the I- ideals of beauty that you're sort of alluding to—they don't just go in one direction; they go back and forth. And it's yeah. like what recently, you know, be- ideal beauty has really changed. You know, be- women are getting butt injections. It's like, oh, it's it's turning. The, the the pendulum is going the other direction now. You know, it's like Twiggy, and it goes in this other direction. Like, wow, this is great. You yeah. Know, I mean, the the fact that it's so changeable is a fantastic thing. We we can think, oh, we've got this is a timeless. Body ideal? No, 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 no. It's gonna like. Oh yeah, there's a period of time where, like, if you were heavy, it showed that you were wealthy enough to get enough food, and so this is a very attractive quality. Because there's scarcity. Yeah, yeah. I I wonder with with rope. I I mean, I think this is why artificial intelligence is going to be so powerful is simply because they don't have puberty and they don't, <laughs> they, they don't need to mess around with all that nonsense that gets us in so much trouble. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but I, I do wonder, I mean, it, what it... So, so evol- the, the reason why we have reproduction most likely, is, is because um, uh, originally there, there was cloning for the first billion years, uh, but, then, but then these parasites would, uh, would be able to kind of, the, these, these fast-evolving parasites with a very show, short lifespan that, that would be able to clone very quickly were able to make these slight little errors that kind of like picked the lock on these larger organis- organisms, immune systems, and, and then... So these um, these organisms that ended up um, evolving um, successfully were these ones that stumbled upon this reproduction stuff that would switch the locks of of the immune system. And I wonder with um, the way computer viruses and everything are evolving so fast, will artificial intelligence eventually have to kind of find its own sort of way of reproducing or you were talking a little bit before mm-hmm. um, about uh, before before we um, for the show about artificial intelligence with IT that might find ways to fix itself well that's the I mean artificial intelligence one thing it is is just anxiety producing uh, you know there are some pretty good robot software developers now I mean not not people who build software for robots but software that builds software. And the, when you think about the the kinds of professions, uh, Julian, whom you had on earlier, had a just had a talk about, is AI smart enough to take my job from me? And then the list of jobs that couldn't, 
that couldn't be taken by AIs is, is worrying to people, right? In, in part because it can not only sort of do its job, but it can sort of do the job of managing its job and creating other jobs and finding out what other kind of jobs it could. I mean, you know, that's it's sort of sort of a runaway problem, maybe, right? Yeah, this has nothing to do with anything you guys do. It's just something that I think about all the time sure. because it's such a ridiculous... It, like, it's so funny that we're like... What if the robots take our jobs? Like, no, that's great news. Like, why do we like working so much? Why, why are we so... Why, I, I don't understand the mentality. I guess it's just a generational thing or something. Like, what is the point of building all of this stuff? If you have a factory and you make a machine that eliminates 10 jobs, that's great. That's progress. Like, now 10 people don't have to mess around wasting their time doing widgets, but instead we go, oh, now these 10 people have to be displaced and learn some new job that they aren't qualified for because they, we need to do something. I, don't, I think eventually we're going to have to be like, let's go 30 hours a week for full time or, or something. But I once think, robots are doing it, I mean, the, even fast food employees, are gonna, it's going to be vending machines, you know? Well, how well have we done... So we've gotten a lot of automation. It's not artificial, but there's a ton of automation. We toil less than we did. And we're talking about... Um, epidemic levels of obesity, epidemic levels of opioid addiction. You could talk about these as being examples of how ill-equipped we are to just chill out. Like, yeah. Are you, you going to chill out some more? How is that going to go for you? you oh, know? absolutely. You know, chilling is hard. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I, oh, how's my life going? Well, if I got a lot of work, I just feel like, whew, I mean, I got one. I'm, I work at IBM, so that's pretty good. You know, like, it's hard to to deal with leisure and are we ready to it, deal with you know it is well especially I, I think that I think it's an allergic response that, uh, <laughs> that we have I honestly do I think it's a psychological allergy that we have that we evolved in an area much like an allergy we evolved in an area where it was impossible to clean every germ and disinfect everything that just simply wasn't possible in our evolutionary past and we needed these healthy sturdy immune systems but now we do have Lysol and all this stuff and now we've gotten rid of it and now people are being raised in a bit of a bubble and now you have this immune system that's meant to be there and it's sitting there looking for danger and it's not finding anything so then it finds like a little bit of cat dander or something it's like oh is that a threat let's set off all the alarms and it's not an actual threat and I, I think much in the same way we've evolved all these negativity biases um, to, to be watchful for lions and other tribes that are going to attack us at any moment. And now we live in the safest world, and now we have, but we still have these mechanisms that are constantly vigilant. And I think that's where a lot of modern anxiety and, and uh, um, depression is coming from, is actually a lack of threats. And so we're perceiving threats that actually aren't there and aren't real, and we attach to the news and TV. I'm going on a long spiel that has nothing to do with anything right now. <laughs> Super interesting, though. Um, Wendy, um, so I, I was curious, because um, I, I want to tie this into like Fitbit and that sort of right. thing. With, with, um, with I'm trying to think of the name of it. There isn't there a isn't there like some pill, does anyone know the, some pill that you can take um, that makes you like sick if you drink alcohol. Yeah, antabuse. Like what what is it? Antabuse. And it's, so you just drink and then it makes you sick. It'll and make then you throw you up. Yes. Is there anything like that with like cigarettes or any other drugs? Um, not in the in the same way. Uh, there's a naltrexone which you can take that if you take heroin it wasn't it won't work. So it'd be like you shoot up and it 
you don't get high, so it's a waste of your money and a waste of your time. Ah, what'd I do that for? Um, <laughs> so I stuck a needle in my arm for no reason exactly. whatsoever. And uh, the vera nicolina is thought to sort of work that way with, with smoking. Some people report feeling sick afterwards. The problem is, so what if we did have the perfect pill just to give somebody for any drug? You have to get them to take that pill. And that's the big problem. So they've had to do research, like research in the past has done all this, these attempts to get alcoholics to take antabuse, and they just don't want to because they want to be able to drink later. And so you have to use the same kind of intervention to get them to take the pill that you would do to get them to not drink anyway. Right. Well, I mean, aren't rewards just well-studied, better for learning in general anyway yes. than, a, than a punishment? And so, well... Like, uh, Depending on, it, I, I, I mean, I we guess are, on the levels we are, punishment. Uh, punishment is pretty effective as well. And it's not always like smacking you across the face when you do something wrong. That's what you think of when you hear punishment. Um, but just somebody sort of giving you the squint eye sideways, that's a punisher and it might change your behavior. So punishment works too, but it's a lot easier to, to give reinforcement when you do the appropriate behavior. Yeah. Um, people are more willing to participate in, their, in a study or in a treatment that's going to be uh, enrich their lives rather than they have to be punished for something that they did wrong. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's what our, our uh, drug system's built on is let's punish people for doing drugs. And how well has that worked? Uh, well, it's a, it works well for like the prison system. You get yeah. them all together and yeah. teach, and they can teach each other how to make meth, so that when they get out and, and can't get a job because their ridiculous criminal record, then, then they know yeah. how to make meth, and then they can go back and they're hey, all you gotta do is privatize the prison. Blah blah blah. It's perfect. Um, <laughs> but um, so so as far as as far as programming in um, like new rewards, there's so. So let's not just talk about drugs. I want to. Yeah. I, I want to talk about. Um, I want to talk about healthier choices and exercise. Yeah. I I think that exercising, every, getting yourself from not exercising to exercising every day, is probably or, or even as much as what's the recommended like three times a week for twenty minutes or yeah. something like that. That's if, not, that at a high like intensity. At a high intensity, yeah. But I would say that's as as someone who's done that before yeah. and doesn't now, and as someone who's also gotten rid of addictions before, I would I would say that's at least as hard, yep. if not harder, than kicking an addiction is. Yep. Um, so what? What um, what are kind of the best study, uh, the various methods for kind of tweaking our psychology and programming these yeah. these new behaviors? Um, like there's things like Fitbit now. Yeah, so I do Fitbit research um, currently. And uh, if you don't know, a Fitbit is a, an accelerometer that measures movement, so it can approximate how much you walk every day. And the recommended... CDC recommendation, I think, is 10,000 steps a day. And most people, I think 65% of Americans don't do that much. Um, I'm amazed it's not much than, higher than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there yeah, are... Yeah, I think there's people, like, misreporting or something. It could be. Um, and so just buying these 
these devices seem to work for some people. So some people just don't know how much they're walking, how bad it is, and they buy it, and they start looking at their own behavior, and it gets better. But most people need a little bit more of a push. Um, so there's a lot of approaches where you can um, get online. Like there's a stick.com, which is you can make a plan online and deposit some of your own money, and then you earn it back for doing fitness goals. Um, the problem with that is you can lie. So you put 50 bucks in there, and then you say you did it all, and then you get your 50 bucks back. So there has to be an, an, an objective way to measure the behavior and then somebody else making a decision about whether or not you actually met that goal, which is what I'm trying to do with my research. So we put uh, Fitbits on individuals and have them walk around. Most of them are campus people. Um, and if they're not walking enough, we'll give them some sort of intervention to get them walking more frequently. And we base the goals on what they're already doing. Like, if I told somebody who walks 2,000 steps a day, tomorrow you need to walk 10,000 steps, that's daunting. And they're not going to do it, and they're going to just quit the study and not come back. And you think about how many of us have joined gyms, and we've gone two days, and it hurt, so we didn't go back. So setting goals very low at first and then working up over time is good and programming reinforcers for that. Um, and having a realistic timeline for what you should be doing um, and giving feedback all the time. It's People love to see that they're doing something well, so showing them a graph of, like, look how good you did actually seems to change behavior a lot. There's a lot of research on getting into social networks, so if you're competing against somebody else or uh, doing some sort of um, cooperation where you both have to meet your goal in order to get some sort of incentive, then you know your friend might call you tomorrow and be like, we have to go, both of us, or I'm not going to get my $5 back. That, sort of, that, that gets people engaged, and then you don't have to do it forever because after you're doing it for a few weeks, it's not as hard to keep doing it as that, like you said, starting initially is hard, um, and you don't have the incentive to do it because it's going to hurt. Yeah, I mean, certainly once you build these new habits, it, it just becomes so much easier because yep. you've learned it and you're and you're used to it. I think we should. I think we should have like adult stickers, like we give yeah. kids stickers. I think that yeah. adults should do that too. I want like if I do something, I want a little star on there. I yeah. can show off to people a little gold star. <laughs> well, that's sort of what Pokemon Go is doing yeah. now, which is it's actually a really cool program. Um, I started playing it because I do this kind of research, but I have to admit I've played it since then, too. Um, they give wow, you... Wow, you are not an addictive person at all, then. No, not at all. Um, so they give you the sticker, right? Like, you get the sticker, which is you get some sort of reward, which is a virtual stupid little Pokemon running around that doesn't even exist. But you walk that extra 2K today so that you can hatch your egg and get a creature. And yeah. so I've seen, you know, kids walking around doing this. I've seen 50-year-olds walking around doing this. It's wearing off. I don't think as many people are playing this sort of game that they, you know, at the, the rates they were a few weeks ago. They just suddenly wake up and say, what the hell am I doing? Well, the, I, the reinforcers, after you've got half the animals, the reinforcers just aren't there anymore. So... You know, it's a virtual, not, it's a cheap intervention. If they could work some way where they would work a meaningful 
consequence into that. I think it could be, you know, those kind of interventions could have a big impact on the fitness level of the, of the whole country. Or even, I know, like in the, the term of art, like in, you know, computer, it's like gamification, you know? Yep. And, the, yep. and the, the big one is, or the one people always talk about is the Prius. It didn't do anything except show you what your mileage is sort of right. in real time. Sort of a tiny little introduction, just like put a little dashboard there. And it's, I think it's had this kind of macrocosmically good effect yep. on people's, you know, they're hypermiling, they're doing all these things to make it go 35 instead of 34. And it doesn't, it's not, a, it's not a punishment, it's not even a reward, it's just sort of transparency. Let me right. show you how bad it is when you step on the gas like that. Right. You know? So working that out with, like these little badges, it's like, I didn't think I wanted a little curly badge thing, but I'm, I, I, darn if I'm not going to like work until I get exactly. that thing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that's another aspect of it that's huge, is just trying to get information to people yeah. that don't have it. I think it's yeah. just plain ignorance. People have, there's just so much to know in life and so, yeah. so much you have to figure out. And then especially with, with diets, there's uh, I, I once was like, I was just curious because I was looking at some numbers and I looked it up and I forget what the numbers were now, but I determined that, that, um, that Americans spend as much on fad diets in a year as um, as the uh, World Health Organization says it would take to feed every starving person nice. <laughs> in the world. Um, so so it's also like as as someone when people do want to take care of themselves, it's it's also so difficult to tease apart yeah. which one is okay is you know is is ground meat really bad for you or is it, you know it's a new thing on the news mm-hmm. each night and so. So getting the right information to people um, in a simple way, like, like having a thing on your car that you're looking at, yep. is so helpful for people to be like, oh, that's, that's no bullshit. That's exactly what my car is running on right now. We need to, yeah. uh, we need to find more ways of, of being able to measure um, our, our choices in general, yep. and, and not, not just health, but like your spending choices and, and everything else. How, how do you see, I mean, the Fitbit seems like a fairly accurate, I mean, it's measuring step, and that's eventually, like if, if your company's rewarding you for your Fitbit, and then eventually someone's just putting the Fitbit on their dog, or, on right. the, <laughs> or eventually in the future, the robots will just do our Fitbitting for us. Um, but where, where do you see that kind of stuff going? Because eventually... Um, I mean, a lot more companies are doing this, but eventually your your insurance company right. might be requiring you to do some of these things as as well, right? Or rewarding you, you for a, it, right? Yeah, get getting a getting a deductible if you walk X number of steps in a month or whatever. Right, right. Um, I do see it going that way, and there are companies that are already doing it, and there are already insurance companies that are doing that. Like my insurance company wants to know what my body mass index is, and I pay a different deductible based on my BMI. Um, they've never come and measured it, so it's just self-report right now. Um, <laughs> what? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean that's it, the can, big problem. Do you get, like, a device if you want? I mean, can they send you... You, you just like, I think it's five, or... Well, then you, you put in your height and your weight, and it oh, calculates right. what right. it is. But I could, you know, I could put in any weight. Right. Um, they also ask you to, to verify whether or not you're a smoker, and if you, you say that you aren't, 
then there's like this little caveat that they can come and measure and make sure that you're not at any point. And it's a difference of your, what your deductible 10% or something like that. And so I see that it, it costs them less money to insure people who That's are not obese and who are not smoking and who are engaging in physical activity. So I, But you have to weigh that against the ethical um, problems that arise. Is it any of their damn business um, what I weigh? They yeah. need to. They need to insure me anyway. So I think that that's what you have to worry about in this kind of measurement: is who gets my data, and, and what can they do with it? And a lot. I mean, and then we're going to need to figure out what constitutes a, a pre-existing condition right. as well, and how to handle that. I mean, if you're, I, I had. Uh, I, it, you you might in the future we might realize that people are predisposed for anxiety for I mean already we know that for obesity rates and everything else so if someone's body mate, weight index we, we have to then consider like well how much is this their fault were right. they born with diabetes where you know there, mm-hmm. there's there's a million factors that we're going to need to tease apart and yeah. and still have empathy and ethics be a part of it. I think that was already isn't the 23andMe is the you get to your own genomic data? Yeah. And I think weren't they already just told to sort of stand down? My, I'm a twin and my twin sister got 23andMe so it's the same data I guess? I mean we're fraternal twins. I think it's mm. the same genome. No it's not. I mean, no. no it's not. It'd some be shared information yeah. but at some point when you got that you would pay a certain amount and you would get it all and that would mean um, you're 5% Neanderthal and you, and they would say things like uh, you're 10% more likely to develop emphysema okay you may be 0.05% likely to develop it and the 10% appreciation is like oh you're now you're 0.055 but people would flip out right. with these statistical problems and it, I mean people don't know what to do with statistics and yeah. so I think they were what's it called enjoined to not share that data so now you get this kind of anodyne sort of you're 5% Neanderthal. I mean, it's not what it was. The data you get is not, it's not as... Uh, what people wanted was, am I going to get emphysema? 5% more! You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not really... But people don't know what to do with statistics. The data is there. We're now told to not provide it. But of course, it's... I mean, you know, can you do it in your, in your basement now? Can you get genomic sequencing? I mean, it's, it's going to be there, right? right. Yeah. Um, I, I also like that when <laughs> like you used your sister's... I was like, wait, do you have an identical twin sister? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, um, I, <laughs> um, but anyhow, uh, one, one of the, uh, I remember, listeners are always asking me for book recommendations, and I just remembered this uh, I read years ago by Michio Kaku, who is uh, a uh, brilliant physicist and uh, a wonderful futurist who sometimes overextends himself as well. But he wrote a book, uh, um, the physics of the impossible and, and kind of where technology is at. This is before Fitbit and, and whatnot. This is years ago. And, and, and where it's going with, with Fitbit and this sort of thing. And, and one of the things that he talked and I have a joke about it on my last CD, which I won't do now, but it's just a very intriguing concept, um, is, is the idea of, of your, your toilet will like be a daily doctor for you. Right. It will be taking urine analysis and stool samples and and it will pick up on diseases way before anything else ever will. And you'll be able to, like, breathe breathe onto a thing or take, like, a breathalyzer, which will be able to pick up on, you know, various 
you know, if you have a cold or uh, getting the flu or what, whatever else in the future. And, and so hopefully we'll be able to use robots to sort of be informing us without us having to like actually look into anything right. like the information or who, get, who else does that who else gets to look at your stool everyone you know? gets to look at my <laughs> stool man i'm i it's i'm, I'm it's going right to facebook every day <laughs> uh, that's it. everyone's getting a stool up i saw there. that actually <laughs> yeah, yeah um but are are you are you like are you hopeful about kind of where the direction of that stuff is going. Do you, do you do you see anything between now and robots picking apart my stool? Like, like where what what's happening in the like the more immediate future? I, I think it's going to help us be healthier if we want to be. Um, like I said, the one thing I'm concerned about is other people's in fear, you know, interfering with us being healthier and forcing us to. It's. Do you remember the fat tax that they were going to enact in, I think it was New York City, where uh, if you were going to eat or drink a certain amount of soda, it was going to cost more and, you know, you get taxed for eating poorly, basically. And Sin taxes. People don't want you to tell them what they should do, but they would like you to tell them the data... Mm-hmm. to help them make the better decisions and they and they can choose whether or not they want to eat better enact that sort of intervention on themselves that that's what i hope happens i don't i hope we don't have organizations forcing us to to behave in particular ways for for monetary reasons and the way i would the most optimistic thing i can say about the technology part of that is that um that, getting that sort of data, getting the, that, that kind of uh, um, insight about people is something that really only some very big parties could afford to do. Yeah. And, and so they would have a stake in the data. Your stool, you know, someone wants to know about it. Well, I, I, I've got, I made the toilet, right? I get the data. I mean, and I, what I'm hopeful about is that the, if the technology, if you can, you know, hack the technology and you have open data formats and open source tools and that sort of thing, then people, you can do it yourself, mm-hmm. or, or small batch versions of this, or or small developing houses can do things that um, that keep it yours. And, and and that's a question of scale. Who funded these robots? Well, it's pretty cheap to build a robot. It's pretty cheap to get some sensors and wire them to your toilet or whatever. Great, because then the sensor goes right to. It doesn't go to Facebook. It just goes to my little data wallet, and it doesn't. Yeah. You know, I mean, so it does. It, it, I don't say that's not the case, but it could be the case if we work to have open data, right. open source. Then you you can you can sort of keep the lock in that is the only kind of agency that would fund this giant stool collecting national. You know, a lot about stool. Uh, yeah, I I had a, I was just looking up his um, name because I'm so terrible with uh, names, but I had a guest on uh, Mikhail Kozinski um, uh, recently. By the time this comes out, it will have been like eight episodes ago or something like that. But but he had um, I told you over the phone he he has this website Apply Magic Sauce, mm-hmm. um, and I recommend it's fun. Everyone should check it out. ApplyMagicSauce.com. And if you're logged into Facebook, you just go in and you click and you give it access to your Facebook. And then it takes all of the things that you've liked, like um, the bands that you've liked on Facebook or whatever it might be. And then it, and then it creates a personality profile 
based on that. So it will determine what age you think it was, which in my case, it was interesting because I was like, why does it think I'm 30? And I was like, oh, I haven't liked anything on Facebook since I started <laughs> Facebook five five or six years ago. And so it was actually really accurate for the time. And, and um, Or your interests are purient. Y- yeah, what's that? Your interests are like, they're like childish. Young uh, yeah, I'm, I'm also immature, <laughs> sure. Um, and then it'll tell you like what gender it thinks it is. Like I'm 62% man. Um, and it's a t-shirt um, and I uh, like what sexuality like I'm 1% gayer than the rest of the population <laughs> so um, uh, and which is mostly because I, I um, like Joel McHale because he's a friend of mine I'm not actually interested in the, uh, the soup show or anything that he does but so it's that's, that's on McHale um <laughs> Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it, so so this is this is like one button, and I'm able to do this for myself. And I imagine in the future it would be just as easy to for employers or anything else Absolutely. to just go in. I mean, they're already looking at your Facebook to go in, build this personality profile on you, and determine if and. and and marketers when they're selling you stuff, and and uh, it does. Does this stuff... So, well, I talked to him. He was fairly... He had a pretty positive, mm-hmm. optimistic take on it. What, what are, does this stuff make you nervous? or Because when f- people first hear about it, does this make some of you guys nervous to hear about this stuff, right? I think it kind of is a little unsettling. Yeah, I think... Uh, you know, we're talking about healthcare. I mean, there's an area where your data is really... You know, the, the potential misuses of it are, are enormous. Personality profile... I mean, those get qualified. You do. You run a personality insights. You know, Watson has a service that does exactly that, and it sort of says things to you about the personality of the tweeter or whatever. Um, you know, IBM, for its part, when you get into medical data, you know, it stands up these big. I mean, Watson in the in the places where it is sort of big and monolithic, it's like in in health, it has to be because people are so worried about their data, and they're so worried about. What, 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 how, where is this going? Or, and of course, when they have um, Watson gets very good at diagnosing people, um, finding potential cures and sort of counterindications and so forth. But it's never going to call itself an expert. It is, this is just, just to answer your question. You know, people it can't say that it's an expert. It's going to call itself an advisor. It qualifies its results because again, it's like the ten percent better chance of emphysema. The numbers that would suggest that this is foolproof or that I've got your personality, I got it now. Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, we're, we're, it's that we're credulous about that sort of thing. That's the problem. If you just looked at it and said, oh, it thinks I'm this, I mean, you can sort of, you're, you're free to rebut that or, you know. Watson's so humble. <laughs> I think he just sounds like such a great Super guy. Super cool guy. Humble, totally smart. He knows everything yeah. about me. I want to marry Watson. Uh, so um, it, I, I had this is a this is a silly ish question, but it's just something that comes up when you talk about talk about this this kind of uh, stuff, and it's we're talking about futurist sort of stuff. Uh, are are you are you worried about the eventual robot apocalypse takeover? The, the, the Terminator robots is this something that keeps you up at night? <laughs> well, I don't know. It sure 
We've been talking about that for a long time, but there does seem to be like sort of evidence on the ground. There's sort of more robots around. Like you, you know, you sort of think, well, that's the silly. These it's like, robots oh, are, are a lot of robots. Up on yeah. me. Oh. Like, there's more robots. I mean, we sort of hit some peak robot, or we're hitting it right now. I have no idea, um, but gosh, oh, we are seems more real. robot. We're not even close. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, uh, They're making robot bees to pollinate everything. And like, little, you could put robots everywhere. in your, you swallow a pill, and it's a robot, and it goes and yeah, does things yeah. for you. I'm, a, I'm agnostic about so robot much. takeover. I don't really... Yeah, well, my, my take on it is I think that as, as a species, as we become more intelligent and more informed, we seem to have empathy for smaller things and, and be more curious and interested in smaller and smaller things the more intelligent we become so i don't understand why anytime i hear like the aliens are gonna uh, aliens if they came they would take over and they had an aisle like why would they do that if they're so much smarter than us why wouldn't they also have empathy and want to learn from us that's an so optimistic I'm, view as we yeah, get smarter I'm not, we get i'm not worried about yeah. as we get smarter we get more empathetic and we get more curious and and we also learn to take care of more things and we become more mindful of our environment and the world and the universe so that's why I love robots. That's my robot pitch, everybody. <laughs> I'm pro-robots. Um, all right. Well, uh, why don't we open it up for a few questions while we wrap up? And also, um, if you guys have any like thing that you definitely want to say before we wrap up, feel free to interject at any time. But does anyone have any questions? Yes? Oh, hold on. Hi. Um, I'll sit down here so people can see. I'm really short. But um, I, I'm fascinated by all the addiction, um, everything about it, uh-huh. really. But I, I, two things. One is I found it so interesting that you said um, that your study at Johns Hopkins, when you offered people an $8 an hour job, not all of them, yeah. but a lot of them would show up, or at least for yeah. a lo- however long the study was. And obviously, we know that a lot of people are losing $8 an hour jobs or have right. lost several right. um, uh, because of any number of addictions from you know, heroin to hoarding and everything in between. Yeah. And then I guess my, so I'll, and I'll ask these two and I'll leave it up to you. The uh-huh. other uh, question that I find so compelling, and it's probably unknowable, but I'm just curious on your opinion about uh-huh. it, is that... Um, is that sort of habit versus genetics or the mixture of the two? You know, some people might have, you might have two twins that have the same, real twins, uh, real identical <laughs> twins, um, and that have the same DNA and uh-huh. one of them becomes an alcoholic or the other right. one doesn't. Or, you know, I, you know, Shane drinks and he can have a drink and put it away and somebody else has a drink and that's it for them. Right. This is like, where have you been all my life? Right. And, and w- how the two play together. And I'll okay. <laughs> All right, well, I'll talk about the first one, um, about people. People already have reasons not to do drugs. They will lose their job if, they, uh, if they're positive, if they go to a drug testing um, at their own workplace. The difference is, if somebody messed up once in our workplace, we told them, you can't work today but try again tomorrow, and we'd do another drug test tomorrow. And the thing about addiction is hardly anybody quits cold turkey without any slip-ups along the way. It's a, it's a relapsing problem where you're going to have many relapses along the way. And if you can make the effect of that relapse minimized, 
um, then you're going to have a bit a better chance at getting back to being abstinent the next day. So I think that was a big big benefit to to that intervention. And I think on any given day, 60% of people were cocaine abstinent and 90% were opiate abstinent. Um, and I think, I'm pretty sure it's one of the best outcomes that you'll see for, uh, for stimulant addiction sorts of interventions. It's the give them a reason to do it today. Make a good decision today. But if you screw up, don't kick you out of the treatment because that's about the stupidest thing you can do. You want to keep contact with individuals who want help. Um, the other question, which was about uh, genetics, you know, it's it's you've got the genetics that you're born with, but then you get different experiences from the moment you're born. Um, you know, maybe once. One person does really well in school and is excelling, has lots of friends, and their twin doesn't do as well, and so there's not as many reinforcers that are available to them. They don't have as many friends, and they're going to be more likely to be susceptible to drug problems. So it's, it's a mixture of what you're experiencing after you're born, plus what are the effects the first time you take it? If you take a drug and it nearly kills you the first time and you felt terrible, you're not going to try it again. If you try it and it like it was the most awesome time you ever had, you're likely to want to go out and try that drug again. So the, the experience the first time you try it is a big influencer as well. So there's a big interplay between the two. Do you think that companies will... So when you talk about... Because a lot of companies aren't going to go for like... Uh, oh, someone no. screws up one... But, but do you think that in the future, maybe there will be... not Not laws necessarily, but just a way of informing like training companies and giving them resources for for helping them understand like hey some people humans are you hire humans humans have problems because you're hiring you're going to have to deal with some of their problems sometimes here is a better way to manage some of their and problems. And that's one of the things we're trying to do is disseminate this sort of approach where don't you know if you really want to attack the problem don't just fire everybody and get rid of them um the the drug field just doesn't have enough people who know how to treat it Mm. there's not i mean people who want to get into treatment get put on wait lists forever and what are they supposed to do in the meantime not work not live their lives while they're trying to get into treatment you know you have to accept that this is a big part of our culture and be compassionate toward it Mm. try to try to make it a better place for them um, any any other questions in here? And you don't have to kneel in front, by the way, um, because that's gonna creep me out. Um, there, we got a longer cord here. Um, sorry about that. We, we we're, we're we're good to go now. Hi. Uh, this kind of ties into the genetics. Um, I was wondering if you think addictive personalities could be something that's hereditary, and then to tie that in with the AI, is that something that could possibly be eliminated in the future because it's they are not going to be genetically predisposed to that? Yeah. So um, I'll just talk about what I think you mean by addictive personalities. A lot of people say that 
once you become addicted to one thing, you're more likely to become addicted to almost everything else. And I think I even heard you say you're an addictive personality before the show. But the, Super good learner, yeah. once again, is how I'd like to phrase it. <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, but the research on an actual thing that is an addictive personality, there's not much support for it being a gene or anything like that. Um, I think it's separate influences. Like, if you are in a bad socioeconomic uh, status group, that puts you in danger of a lot of different things that you can learn poorly. The marshmallow task that you were talking about, you might be more likely to choose something immediately. Um, you might be more likely to, to come into contact with drugs and all that. Um, the good news is I don't think that there's a genetic thing that makes us not be able to overcome that. Um, but there Even are people... It's genetic susceptibility. It's, it's not genetic determinism. Yeah. Right. And it's not cross-modal. Like, if you're more likely to become addicted to a substance because maybe your father was or something like that, there's a lot of evidence that, that a single modality, yeah, there is genetic susceptibility, but not that grand, oh, well, I'm going to have problems with... You know, playing too many video games and drinking too much and smoking and everything else, um, that you can address these problems separately because they're not coming from like you got the bad genes when you were born. Sorry. And, and I think the the place where this intersects with technology is um, again, it's like the devil will find work for idle hands to do. I mean. AI may be responsible for a whole new level of leisure. Again, we talked about leisure. And it's certainly, I mean, technology is delivering all sorts of impulsive, fun things to do. And so I think how we navigate that, maybe with the assistance, maybe there's ways for us to learn better, be better learners, or just be better cultivators of our leisure. But I think yeah. technology is set against us just because it's so good. It de- it's a delivery vehicle for whatever, for Pokemon Go. But yeah. maybe it will, maybe it will be, it, like, remember those, um, you know those old-timey things where, like, someone would be, like, in a belt, um, and, and the machine would, like, shake them, <laughs> yeah. and that was, like, a yeah. workout thing? Like, yeah. maybe there will be a robot that can do that for us. Maybe. Uh, eventually. Or, like, like, the hugging you machine. You set an know. alarm. And a, yeah, it's hugging tug- machine. Yeah, yeah, that's right. People need it, and we got a robot to do it for you. Give you a hug, and you're... <laughs> yeah. Right. I want a robot just to pick me up and, like, exercise me. I'm like, ah, oh, this sucks, and you do it for, like, 30 minutes, and then you're, then <laughs> well, you're done, and you're healthy. I think if we had robots cooking our dinners for us, we would make a lot better decisions oh, about what sure. to eat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, part of the problem is we get home and there are potato chips there and we eat them because mm. they are immediately available. Mm. Yeah, so, it's sort of like the, you know, you talked about insurance companies are now interested in what's it called? Preventative medicine. Yep. But it ain't, it's not, there, it's not virtuousness. The costs associated with unpreventative care right. are so enormous. They go, we got to start. I mean, so I get a. I, I'm subsidized to use a Fitbit, sort of, by the insurance company. I'm right. not sure. Uh, I don't do that, but um, or I. I think I. You know, I wrote it down. I lied about it or something. But uh, but it didn't. It wasn't a sense of um, better human beings so much as just runaway costs associated with all these people yeah. who are having these. You know, the what are they called? The diseases of. Uh, Sedentary, what's the word? There's sedentary a, behavior, so, yeah. yeah. yeah sedentary of, lifestyle. Um, any other questions for me? Yeah. So you guys touched on a lot of topics. Um, 
Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that was, uh, I pulled a lot yeah. of the weight on that part. Yeah, thanks. And it was a really interesting discussion, but kind of a, a pervasive theme that I heard was sort of how we use information is really important in how we make decisions. Um, and also that there is a great inequality in terms of information that different people have. So kind of looking at the future, uh, what do you guys see as good ways to uh, have greater equality of information and help people make better decisions about you know, what they're trying to do? And for uh, Watson and self-learning AI, how can we teach them uh, the good without hopefully the bad of how we make decisions? Uh, that's a good question. I, I have no idea uh, how to do that. I just I just saw there was a headline recently about um, about a study, um, a computer that had learned a thing or two about learning was given a bunch of data about a population of people, and it very quickly sort of dissolved into making uh, racist and sexual stereotypes. And that's because computers are classifying. That's what they do. I mean, in classification is always, in some sense, a reduction. And it's just like, what's the pattern here? And it starts saying, it's just spewing these sort of things. Um, the computer, yeah, I, we'll, we'll, I mean, there's a certainly, um, being in charge of our own data and finding out where it goes is important. But gosh, we're not good at that. I mean, we are, we're, we're getting rid of our data as quickly as we can. You know, stools on Facebook is like, I'm doing, I'm posting. Yeah, I'm yeah. doing it. So we haven't it, demonstrated that we're very responsible. Go ahead. It, well, it's just funny that people are so worried about their data and then just like tell everyone, yeah, like yeah. are so needy for <laughs> everyone to see every meal yeah, that they're making and everything else. But yeah, yeah go on. Yeah, I, but that's just a great question. And I mean, I, you know, the, the technologies are there. Um, the sort of protocols and infrastructure for doing that sort of thing are certainly there. Um, it's really, will we do it? I don't, I don't know how you could train humans to be more responsible, but it, it ain't a hardware problem. I think it's a sort of wetware problem. Our willingness to... Our, no, I mean, we're social creatures, and we're always exchanging information, and man, I love exchanging information with you. I'm doing it right now, and I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to keep on talking. You know, so I don't, I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, the Internet has done more for that than any other... Uh, technology ever has uh, as far as disseminating information, but it's not always the correct information. If anybody's on Facebook, I mean, there's, there are things on there that are absolutely 100% wrong, but are compelling. You click on it and you go, oh my gosh, that sounds awesome, and now I can, I can eat Twinkies and be healthy because of this study or whatever. So I think the biggest problem we have to, we have to distill the scientific information and make it interesting to everybody, even people who are at lower socioeconomic status and have less education. I think you mentioned earlier, there's just so many pieces of, it, pieces of information about what's healthy and what's not. Yeah. Additives and foods, how much are we supposed to be walking? Oh my gosh, I got exposed to you know, DDT or something like that. How do we distill it down and, and deliver the information? I don't know how to do it. I mean... I'm going to insert one nerd. You said like you can push something in the conversation. One super nerdy, just in a word. It's like the guy who says plastics in the graduate. Yeah. Blockchain. Block blockchain. Blockchain. It's a. What's that? It's a. Uh, IBM is very very excited about blockchain. Um, Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It was. Uh, we, we all know. We all know blockchain because of Bitcoin. And the 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 irony is that 
Bitcoin has seemed to be a way that um, people who are up to no good um, can get money. Like if they're going to hold your grandma's pictures for ransom, they're going to get paid in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. But that's a cryptocurrency that runs on a network called blockchain. And it's actually just a, it's a way to ensure that um, we all have a network in this room. And we're all members, and so the record of all of our transactions is absolutely visible to all of us. And the transactions are immutable, so there's a, there's a sort of shared ledger of all of our activities, selling cars and liking and not liking and medical data. So blockchain is the underlying infrastructure for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is just its most popular sort of manifestation, but blockchain would, would, would be disintermediating and it's not not insurance providers who are in trouble with blockchain or even banks or paypal you know you pay paypal money to establish trust between us but blockchain would be like i know it's him i know this is what we're exchanging everyone can see that so there's a sort of reputation there there are there's thinking about networks and the way we communicate that are good for this that is they're distributed and sort of low latencies i think there are ways to manage it and it's in a way it's like the internet's growing up the internet, we've just been having a party on the internet. It's crazy how fun it is. Well, what about the internet of trust? Like, how do we get, how do we establish trust and how do we exchange real value? Oh, you're going to put a tip jar or PayPal? There's ways to think about um, sharing information and value and currency that are good in that way. Yeah, yeah it's, it, the internet is growing up. It's, I, it is, I remember I, I was, I mean, I've been a comedian for 12 years, so I was I was putting stuff on, on YouTube at the MySpace, you probably found it. MySpace during the foundation of YouTube. And when YouTube first came out, you put something on, and, there, and the trolling is so much less than it used to be. You used to, people used to, as soon as they got the YouTube, they're like, oh, finally I can call everyone gay. And they're just like, they click on something and not even watch, gay, 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 It's racial, you know, slur, whatever, like, as fast as they could. And that, and now it's just like, now it's, it's just kind of a part of the zeitgeist, it's part of the culture where it's just like, yeah, that's not cool. Like we don't we don't do that anymore. Like it's just stupid. You look like an idiot, yeah. and and we are we're maturing and we're and we're growing up. Um, I I I think I know exactly where um, education is going. I think uh, I think the future of education is in entertainment. I think it's I think it's going to be a mix of it. Uh, there there's already you can already find a, a million um, really amazing interesting classes online for free like Coursera and TEDx and uh, all these or edX rather um, TED talks you know all, all of this stuff is is available in and you can you can watch uh, planet Earth and and life and all of this David Attenborough stuff that is visually spectacular and you can even have on in the background. And not be paying any attention to it, and then I'll, and it's just so stunning that it's going to just naturally spark your curiosity, and then you will start looking into that. I mean, that's a big part of why I'm into all of this stuff. I remember I used to be, I, I was always a very angry atheist. I was, I was raised, I was very, raised very strictly religious, and I very much rebelled against it, and I just didn't understand how people can be so fucking stupid, and and like. I was very upset about it my whole life, and and uh, and as I started learning more about about evolution and and um, how it works, I, I realized I was like, well, I didn't know how evolution worked. It's, it's incredibly complicated. It's it's so much to know, and 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 that's it's a big part of why I started this podcast. Is I'm from the Midwest, and I thought, well, 
a lot of these people are smart enough, they just simply don't have access to a lot of this information. And I bet I can do this in a way that can communicate it to people in an interesting way. And this stuff is interesting. A lot of you didn't know what you're getting into today. And then and you came, and this is an interesting, fun conversation, and we had laughs, and we all learned. And I think that's where the future of all of this is going. I think that, I think that TV is making smart people dumber because it's wasting their time. But I think it's making dumb people much smarter because... To, to be able to understand shows like Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones, and that, uh, is, this is really like high-level intelligent stuff. This is a philosophy, and, and uh, watch Rick and Morty, uh, a silly cartoon that is thought-provoking and really, really interesting, and, and then it, it, it'll eventually make you dig more. And I, and I think that's where the future is going, and that's why I do this podcast. And thank you guys so much for coming out to the 100th episode of the Here We Are podcast. Thank you, Wendy Dunlan and Ian Eschker for coming out. And thank you all in Dead Crow Comedy Festival or Comedy Club in Wilmington. You guys were terrific. Have a good day. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, The New Frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? <laughs> Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, oh my God. he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God.